Topping talks. One hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Talks is also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I see the founder at least twice a day. I have to say, quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas, it could use a hand. You can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect. ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give a 100% guarantee via the 30-day money-back guarantee. Now, without further ado, I am proud to say uh, today I'm interviewing Max First, who is Executive VP at Wolfpack Agency. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. So wind, winding back a clock couple years, how do you first get into camera work and advertising? What got um, you interested? Yeah, well, it's it's an honor to be here. And like some of your other guests, uh, it all starts in the automotive world yes. for me. Um, I, I started working on cars, going to car meets, getting into drifting more specifically at a 240SX. Nice. Um, and the short of it is I was, uh, I was out drifting trying to, you know, at the time, you know, I was 18, 17 thinking I was going to be this big pro drifter, oh, yeah. not knowing that racing takes a whole lot of money to, oh, yeah. to compete in. So, uh, I, I learned in college with no money that, uh, you know, probably wasn't going to happen. So I, I wanted to focus on a career, mm-hmm. sell my car and then eventually get back into it. Right. So I'm in college at the time. I sell my 240SX. Uh, they've got a film program at UNT, which is where I went, and uh, decided, you know what, I'm going to switch majors to film. I grew up filming skateboarding, which was a big passion of mine, too, and uh, switched to the film um, program over there. Mm-hmm. Um, during that, I basically kept going to events, kept going to races, and to make myself useful, uh, or make myself feel useful. I'd bring a camera with me and go film with some of my friends that were up and coming drivers and got super into it. Um, what, kind w- of, what kind of camera was that at the time? Oh, it was a uh, Canon T2i. Oh, there you go. Which I think they're on like the T8i yeah, or something I was now. About to say. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, camera ad- advancements have come a long way, and I think that was uh, yeah, that was 2010. Oh wow! I believe that that when I really kind of locked into filming. Uh, race cars and I was borrowing cameras from friends yeah. too so I had nothing I was poor because I was trying to race and trying to be a big shot and yeah it's it's takes a lot to to make it up the ranks if you will oh, absolutely so uh yeah I mean from there I'm filming racing um wakeboarding was a big hobby of mine too that I had gotten into so there's uh there's parks locally that you can go film at that have these like cable systems oh really um yeah and so to be able to go do that I would go I, I would work there and so I was you know working there operating the machinery for you know eight bucks an hour so I could just go ride for free and then I had like, the go. car hobby too so a lot of I had a lot of expensive hobbies yeah. as a kid <laughs> that I tried to make work um but yeah, so I was filming hobbies like wakeboarding, racing, and eventually kind of figured out that people would give me money for videos. Mm-hmm. So it transitioned from you know an hourly rate to to work, and while I was going to school, to oh maybe I can do a video for a hundred bucks or yeah. fifty bucks, or I started kind of doing my little hustle with that, and 
Um, do, do you remember your very first commission project or the very first time you got paid to, for camera work? The first one that stands out, like I, I think I did a lot of like little things and, and filming little events and stuff for 50 bucks, 100 yeah. bucks. But the first big one that I was like, oh, man, I'm I'm, I'm making it was uh, for for my buddy Kevin. He's got an Evo shop nice. uh, called Evo Dynamics. And they also have an app that they created to help manage performance shops. Oh, cool. So they're big entrepreneurial guys, Kevin and Todd, good friends. Um, I remember they told me, you know, we need this video for our, our program or our app that we're running. Um, at the time, they were, like, I think about to go on Shark Tank or they were just oh, going really? on Shark Tank. So they wanted, like, a really solid video going on there. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, they offered me 500 bucks, and I was rich. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was there you go. Bro- broke kid in college. <laughs> 500 bucks is a lot of money to me. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we, we filmed their, their little video, and that what? really clicked for me. What was that video like, or was it thinking that you was on the track or street drifting? No, what, what was it like? It was it was all at their shop. Uh, There's no racing involved. That was a funny thing. Really, it's like they it was for the app, and they kind of you know beta tested or did the uh, R and D at their own shop to help them manage customers. It was really cool. Like you could go in and order parts through it. You could update customers through it and had automated text and messages and pictures of builds to where they're not spending all this time on the phone. It was a oh, yeah. great idea. Brilliant. Um, so that's what we showed up. We went to the shop and we filmed at their shop, but it was what can the app do yeah. uh, for for the customer and the owner of the shop too. So kind of a boring video, but yeah. use case wise, ROI wise, yeah. It was great. Absolutely. You know? and what kind of gear? What was the process like? Were you what kind of camera? Then how would you edit it? And where would you post it? Or you just give them a CD? Or what was that? What was that whole like? It was this. This was right when, not right when YouTube came out, but YouTube was like a starting to become a big thing. It had been out for a bit. So for them, it was like I remember, I brought my my trusty. I had bought my own T2i by this time. Yeah. And I remember I had this like big crane that my buddy Fielding who. I filmed he had a bunch of gear that he let me borrow mm-hmm. I had this big like jib that was 12 feet long and a pain in the ass to oh, drag gosh. around but it was the coolest thing ever at the time so I remember setting up a jib in the shop and doing these big like sweeping jib shots and then just for the folks at home what's a jib it's it's like a crane it's like a portable crane so it was just it's on a stand and you operate it from the back you put the camera up top yep. it shoots out about 12 feet so I'm like operating this big crane in the shop to get these like big sweeping movements you see them on live shows and oh stuff yeah all i think the time. Saw, I, my, I think it's on my myth busters back in the day yeah, yeah yeah so or if you're at a concert or something but like yeah. to have that piece of gear at the time it was like you know i was losing my mind over it yeah at the time um so yeah we use gear like that i just lit interviews up and asked them questions about the app and it was pretty pretty cut and dry video i just tried to get cool b-roll of all the evos and at the time oh i yeah. was just like mind blown at these cars, you oh, know, they're, the, they're iconic. I mean, yeah, it's the, it's the pin, in my opinion, opinion, one of the pinnacle of Mitsubishi engineering. I mean, for sure. And, and we'll get to it later, but obviously I, I owned, yeah. owned one and, and, and built one to be a, a, a camera accessories, if you will. So it's funny to think back that like, you know, my first big rake video was at a shop that built Evos yeah. and I ended up owning one. But like you said, it's, it's one of the more iconic, JDM cars that you can own, and uh, it was like I was surrounded by Ferraris, basically. Yeah. You know, it's, it's stuff I look back, and I'm and I was wigging out about at the time, but may not, you know, 
catch my eye today because yeah. I've seen a lot and done a lot, but I like to, to look back at those things and remember how excited I was. Absolutely. And then when, once you capture all that video, do you edit it on a PC or a Mac? or Yeah. How, how did you deliver, uh, deliver the product? At the time, I was on PC because it was the more efficient option. Oh, yeah. You could build your own PC, uh, edit video on it. And it was, I feel like from then, you know, again, 2010, 2011, I was always like just enough money to have some kind of yeah. operating system that like worked, but it didn't work great. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, rendering shots just so you could view them or stru computers struggling to keep up with what you wanted. So like the time it takes to edit a video doubles. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, at the time it was PC. Uh, I eventually got a MacBook that was okay for what I was needing. So I, I've always floated between the two. I've always had both actually. Like oh I'll, really? Yeah, I'll have a desktop that I build, and then I'll uh, get a MacBook. But I still have the desktop and. Upgrade one and then yeah. get another one, which now today I'm like, I pretty much work on my new MacBook Pro laptop all the time because they're yeah. insane now. Especially with the Apple, proprietary Apple-made processors too. Yep. The M1, M1 yep. Max, oh, ha yeah. had to pick it up. It's got my name on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I put it to the test and they're, they're fast, man. I love it. Incredible. Definitely something I want to get long-term into in terms of podcasting because mm -hmm. I've heard nothing but good things, especially video editing on those um, setups. I throw a lot at my MacBook, and I'm sometimes I'm surprised it doesn't just light on fire with the amount <laughs> of data and, and stuff that we shoot now with, with camera tech advancing as far as it has. But they really, really crushed it on the on the development of the chip and processor speeds, and then it handles all the graphics and even like 3D After Effects work that we do with it. Oh yeah. So and then after you start started those first couple of projects and kind of launched your full your full fledged uh, own shop. What were a couple of highlights when you were working for yourself and starting to kind of dive deeper into the industry? Yeah, I think, you know, from that point forward, again, I was in college. I was in the film program, and I remember being there, uh, being frustrated because it was a little more TV-oriented, and I knew I didn't want to work in TV. So yeah. um, and back to YouTube. YouTube was really starting to blow up. So a lot of what I learned was just – going to class, doing what I needed to do to pass the class so I didn't have to retake it the next semester. I was not the best student there or growing up because yeah. I was always distracted by hobbies and things I wanted yeah. to do. So film was that hobby that I was going to school for, but I felt like I wasn't learning at the pace I wanted to learn. So yeah. go home, get on YouTube, watch people's footage, watch tutorials, and that's how I really developed uh, a skill set and kind of style and learning from – other cinematographers too that that I knew that shot the same things that I did. Yeah, I was gonna say definitely good good call because how many people are shooting for TV nowadays? Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> it's, it's kind of crazy. Like we had a full blown news and TV station, and it was fun. Like yeah. uh, the teachers were great there, but I just I didn't know what I was doing. Like it, it wasn't like I was some genius going. I'm gonna do this and and make a bunch of money. It was just kind of like it. I had normal jobs. I was waiting tables and going to school. And then eventually it worked out to where I didn't have to wait tables, but I was still in school. Yeah. Um, and then moving forward from that, I started shooting more racing, doing videos like that. And that's when my buddy, Nate Hamilton, a kid that I um, met back in 2008, um, drifting. We were drifting together, and he was one of the people that was – up and coming and and had eventually made it to be a pro driver oh, cool. um yeah and and we've been good
good friends for a long time. He asked me to come along for the season to all the races around the country for Formula Drift and start taking. It was mechanic work and taking photos for sponsors to help deliver, you know, content to them and, yeah. and deliver recaps. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I've got 13 hours of school left yeah. uh, or class cre- credits left and summer was coming up. I was like, I'm going to take a semester off because I don't feel like I'm progressing here yeah. and went to go shoot racing. And that decision came with a lot of, I guess, controversy at the school and with, with with family and friends. They were like, why are you dropping out of school? And yeah. I'm not dropping out, but you know, this was my dream. I grew up watching all yeah. these guys racing, and now I get to go film them and travel the country. How could you not say yes to that opportunity? Yeah, yeah I was going no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, uh, that kind of launched the next chapter of things. It's filming racing and doing that um, for years. You know, I think I filmed, you know, when I did – three or four years of formula drift oh wow consecutively yeah um at the time we we ended up getting an apartment together and a shop together to where i was helping his program and then still hustling videos back home um and getting more basically using the the business side of video making to you know pay my rent and pay the bills and then going and filming racing and you know taking whatever budget i could that could be allocated to me to go do that but i love doing it so yeah Absolutely. Mick, what was your favorite place when you were going all over, going to all these events? What was your favorite one or favorite spot? Uh, I mean, all the tracks are so cool. Again, I grew up probably from like 20 or 2004 watching Formula Drift. So next thing I know, we're, you know, hanging out with all these drivers after races that I grew up watching and, and idolized and they're becoming friends and they're staying with us when they come to Texas um, and we're going to all these tracks. Uh, I remember going to Road Atlanta. That was always like a really iconic track in Formula Drift. It's one of the, it was one of the fastest entries. You know, cars are flying oh, 100, yeah. 110 miles per hour into the first turn. Yeah. Um, so seeing that in person, seeing the crowd, the crowd was always rowdy. The cars are crazy. Uh, the scenery's beautiful. I think that was that was on my the top of my list. And then Owendale Speedway was always the last round of Formula Drift where. Yeah people won or lost championships so i got to watch a lot of uh uh definitive moments in drifting history happen at irwindale awesome Um, so that was it was cool to be a part of that and to witness it live absolutely what was it like being behind the scenes because i'm guessing you had different access you get closer to the camera what what was that whole process like yeah i mean we could basically go wherever we wanted within reason um safety reason of course they they had rules for us and stuff, but it's it's cool getting a like Irwindale's a good example. It's it's a banked track with a big bank and then a small bank at the bottom. And I remember just I would sit at the bottom bank, like up against the K rail with my wide angle lens and just get these crazy shots, but just get hit with tire smoke <laughs> and dust over and over and over again. It was like I was that the happiest kid in the world to be oh, there. That's awesome. So a lot of a lot of cool places. I like shooting close to the action with wider lenses. Oh yeah, uh, and I kind of attribute that to growing up skateboarding. It's kind of the style, fisheye lens. Oh yeah, um, getting close and getting these cool wide shots. That's the way to do it. And it's so many variables that go into that, and all the camp. So what kind of camera setup were, setup were you using for that particular? Race? Um. So I I went with my T two I. That that camera went through a lot right. with me. So 
the first, I think it was just the first year, MIT2I, I was helping change tires or work on the car, and then I was taking photos with it and some video clips. And that was at a time I remember, like, that year, actually at the Texas round, uh, on Instagram, like, Instagram launch, and, like, we could we would only post things from our phone. Yeah. Uh, like, photos from our phone. And I remember learning from uh, a friend, Ryan, and I think maybe it was Nate learned from Ryan, and Nate taught me, but uh, we figured out how to send edited videos to Dropbox and then send them to our phone. So all of a sudden now you could upload all this, like, professional looking content instead of just like cell phone yeah. iphone oh, yeah. four or five or whatever it was at the time photos instagram um so i remember that being a thing um you're, so your videos just automatically like light years light years ahead of yeah, all the competition yeah. on instagram. even <laughs> even with just my t2i so uh but from then i progress i remember buying a sony a7s when it first came out oh nice um and taking i i had gotten allocated budget from one of the sponsors who's the marketing director is still a really good friend to this day. Uh, my buddy Cody, who I remember getting uh, a few thousand dollars to film like the whole season um, fr- from him and uh, basically blowing it all on uh, an A7S and all yeah. camera gear. So then I was <laughs> like, all right, I got to figure out how to get to all these races and travel <laughs> and eat fair. Uh, but it was still the best decision. So I'd, I had that A7S for years. I think like, I finished out like my first stint of filming four wheel drift and then eventually um, I left for a while to build a business. But when I came back, I had uh, bought a red camera. Oh, really? Yep. Those things are so professional. They, they gather so much data. It's insane. Yeah, they're little crazy computers with crazy sensors. And it was, you know, at, th- at the time buying one of those um, and a lot of, I think, a lot of video people like me saying this but it was definitely like a statement piece to where like when people i mean now you know the brand oh yeah you know they're they're not a household name but like a big brand name to where oh, people it's impressive yeah you had some uh validation if yes. you owned one oh, yeah. which you know today means nothing it's it's yeah. it's about what you shoot and the lenses and that's what everybody told me but i still was like i want a red camera oh, you yeah. know and i bought one and i was building my my other business at the time to get a higher quality video camera and use that kind of uh, clout or just uh, prestige to get clients. And it worked. Oh yeah. It's good. I mean, it's good advertising. A lot, Mm -hmm. a lot of businesses have like a halo product or, you know, Mm -hmm. something kind of validate, Hey, this is one of the tools we use. It's kind of cliche to say, but you can't just go to Best Buy and buy it. It's it's, it's professional grade. It's higher quality. The halo products, a good analogy, I think is, is, you know, competing with other agencies and yep. video guys at the time sometimes it was just like oh do you have a red and i was like yeah and they'd be like okay like what's your rate we want you to come shoot this awesome them not knowing you know i've got a 900 hundred dollar sigma lens or whatever that yeah that's <laughs> you know, still a great lens and whatnot right. but uh that's just part of their marketing that was yep. smart oh yeah and, uh, it works yeah and for the folks at home who don't realize 900 dollars is a Maybe a mid-level lens. I mean, it, it's crazy oh, yeah. how expensive they get. Uh, it's I, I mean. w- once you get in a real commercial work, it's oh, yeah. it's low level. I mean, we we rent. Eventually, you can't just buy these lenses because it financially it doesn't make sense. You rent oh, yeah. them from rental houses, but uh, the last commercial we did, you know, one lens is about thirty forty grand. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. And we're buy- we're using a set of five. You know. Oh my gosh! So you rent them, and it's a thousand bucks, fifteen hundred bucks for the day. 
just to use them. The Rob Bradley's playing like 150 grand plus for those lenses. Yeah, it doesn't oh make sense gosh. for us. But like uh, the the red camera <coughs> at the time, I remember. I think uh, like I'm pretty comfortable talking numbers and stuff. Um, I think I spent like 22 grand on it. Gosh, on the bo- uh, just with the naked body or pl- body plus lens plus all the accessories. Well, everything I needed. Okay, gosh, everything yeah. I needed. So it was a lot of money at the time, and uh, I, I tell people. Myself under the gun, and I like I like saved up half the money. Then I like cash advanced a credit card. Yeah, yeah. had like a low interest rate for like a year. Yeah, and used the rest of it to pay for that. I was like, I know this is gonna pay off. pay pay off, yeah. and I'll make it back. And I did, and it worked out fine. But my, you'll see, my path is is kind of untraditional in yeah. some ways, like that. Um, well, I like that. It's just you gotta have that kind of confidence, and I'm sure it also gave you the extra hustle to grow the business because you know you're invested, you're all in. Mm-hmm. You gotta pay off that credit card. You gotta you know recoup the investment in the hardware and the yeah. software. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like confidence at the time. It was just I want this, and I feel like it's gonna work. But yeah. it was still <laughs> like that unknown of like, holy crap, this is a lot of money to me. Um, and like you said, it worked out. Oh yeah, and th- do you remember what was the very first thing you shot when you had the new red camera? Or, or was it, and then what was your favorite project <coughs> when you were working on it? Yeah, I do actually, and it's it. it's funny. It's an ode to kind of what we're talking about. Like everything comes back to automotive. I picked up the camera, um, I took it home. I remember shooting clips of my now fiance um, and our our little Chihuahua, like filming clips around the house. And then I I called my buddy Tim, uh, Tim Tran. He had a twin turbo R eight that he like really yeah. He well he bought it uh, from like a salvage yard yeah. I think. Cause it was wrecked. It didn't have doors on it and oh. he like pieced it back together, but it already had the twin turbo kit on it. I remember calling him. I'm like, Hey, are you working on that thing tonight? And he was like, yeah. Uh, I said, Hey, I bought this you know, crazy camera. Can I go just film clips of you working on it? And he was putting like this carbon skin over the whole car mm-hmm. and it was crazy. Cause it was like in all these different pieces and, and you know, to me, looking at this crazy luxury car that's yeah. i'm like that's the same motor as a lambo that's yeah. on that thing it's got twin turbos on it and it's just like laying in pieces and you're putting carbon all over it it was crazy so i filmed him that night um mixing epoxy and putting carbon pieces on and cool. uh those are the first clips i shot with the camera awesome that, i mean sometimes there's no replacement for displacement there's something nice about having a v10 in a car it was cool and then slap some turbos on it and that's it's incredible. crazy it's good. I think it was a Hefner kit, and the car made like nine hundred. Uh, it was a cool car, and it was gated too. It was uh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I remember. As correctly. they should be, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's so hard to find them, and they. I think this year's the last. Uh, they're doing a Halo edition, really nice, you know, all out. But I think it's the last year for the Audio R eight. Oh, is it? Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, they might, I, might be going electric. I was just saying. I know the for the V ten. Yep. Yeah, it'll 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 fall under their Etron series. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy, and it's what all the OEMs are doing. Yeah. You know? So it's, I, like you said, there's no re- replacement for displacement, but, yeah. man, I've driven some of these EVs, and they're they're sick. Oh, they're I mean, really cool. I mean, it's hard to be – I mean, it's a supercomputer on wheels, like a Tesla mm-hmm. Model Plaid. I mean, it's, it's, it's zero to 60. Is it under, like, two seconds? Is it 1.9? I it's think it's 1.9. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah, the instant torque you get from one of those. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you've been in oh, yeah, like I even have. the P100s when they launch. It's like you feel all the blood go to the back of your head. Oh, no, not one of those. It, I, it's nuts. I've heard really good things about the Porsche Taycan, too. Yeah, like, those are cool. Especially because the way they soft – I don't know if there's software or it's a combination of software and hardware, but 
you could hit that thing, you could punch that accelerator, and you'll get the same acceleration throughout the whole life of the battery, like even if you're at 100% or 20%. Oh, cool. Whereas other competitors, like, you know, if you only have 50%, they're going to naturally limit w- your speed and your acceleration no matter how hard you punch that paddle. Yeah, there's definitely, like, some battery discrepancies, or I think, like, all the OEMs right now are just trying to figure out, like, how to rate things. Like, oh, yeah. how do you rate towing capacity on a electric vehicle when you know that it's going to drain the battery? Oh, yeah. Even if, you know, I think the the Hummer is a good example. Oh, like yeah. They, like, they're, like, it has 14... I think it's some some crazy metric like thirteen thousand foot pounds of torque, and it's yeah. like, does it or is that just like how much you can turn the battery up? Or are you yeah. going to use that towing? Or what about towing distance and how much does that drain the battery? Like everybody's trying to figure out how to market these things right yeah. now. And I've gotten to drive a lot of them, and I've gotten to even work with uh, marketing a bunch of them. Oh, cool! And it's it's interesting to see you know who's kind of leading in the space and oh, yeah. who like. You know, Ford is doing a lot of cool stuff uh, with marketing EVs too. Oh yeah. Um, and then you got companies like Kia. Like Kia is doing amazing stuff, and eventually going to have an uh, an all EV lineup. Oh, yeah. And you know, you wouldn't think over the five years ago, I wouldn't think Kia would be rebranding and doing that. But like, you get in their new EVs, and they're sweet. Like daily driver oh, wise, yeah. it's hard to beat that kind of comfort and tech. Absolutely. That's probably one of the best turnaround companies and probably one of the turnaround best turnaround examples in automotive history. Absolutely. Was it 15 years ago? They had a CEO from Volkswagen or Audi group. Um, they actually went over to become the CEO of that group, and mm-hmm. he, he turned the whole thing around. Because it used to be a cliche, not cliche, it used to be a the butt of a lot of jokes at, like, talk just shows. A, uh, um, just a budget Korean yep. car brand, you yeah. know? Like um, Jay, Jay Leno had jokes like, oh, yeah, you'd be more reliable just taking a bobsled down the street. It's uh-huh. like, but no, they revamped. They at the time, I think it was I'm trying to think when I was selling cars, but they had the best warranty in the industry. It was like ten year, hundred thousand miles. Yep. All the interiors were pretty similar to an Audi. Like you had nice yeah. leather, heated and cool seats were standard on everything. Like, yep. So they've come a long way in terms of really revamping the whole brand. So it's nuts. And, and what they did with the Telluride, like oh, that's yeah. the hottest selling car right now. You know. Yeah. And then the Sorentos are super nice. Then you get into oh, the yeah. EV sixes. Um, I mean. Like you said, their their turnaround is one of the biggest in the industry. Oh, great! And like all their JD Power scores are through the roof. Like, oh, yeah, they're they're absolutely crushing it. Oh, they're doing great. Mm-hmm. And I love how they still have some fun cars too, like the Velociraptor. You get, I like having a good old stick shift little small car. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Velociraptor. <laughs> Veloster, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah. Those <laughs> those look fun. I've seen people mod those, and apparently, like you can do a lot to to turn them up past factory. Oh yeah, and they're really really fast. That's how every engine should be designed. It's like, oh, yeah, you have the factory rated, but make it strong enough so you can, you know, bolt on as yeah. much fun toys as you want to. Some really people do it, and then other, other uh, you know, factories don't. Like, yeah. some of these new cars, <laughs> you can't get in the ECUs. You can't unlock oh, yeah. anything. Um, it's interesting to see from the performance side where things go. And, too, like, my position now, you know, I started off shooting performance automotive. And yeah. Now I'm working more on the OEM side. So, uh, getting to get gamed up on that side and seeing it from the manufacturer perspective mm-hmm. on what to do, what not to do. Oh, yeah. um, cars like the Toyota Supra that have this like performance legacy, like oh, yeah. as Toyota, how do you launch this um, this car and promote it as a sports car, mm-hmm. especially like the whole auto versus manual. You know, everybody yeah. 
cried and complained, and yeah. then they came out and they were auto. Automatic I, only. Yeah, yeah. For the first two or three years of production, I forget. Mm-hmm. I drove one. The uh, auto's great. It's so good. We uh, I tracked it here at Crescent. It's, oh it yeah. was amazing. And then they dropped the the manual the GR, on everybody. Yeah, yeah. The GR version. Oh yeah. Which is great too. Brilliant marketing. I mean, everyone wanted it, and yep. I mean, there's something just legendary. And just timeless about a manual transmission, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And I'll, I'll go on a mini rant about the Supra because I remember it launched and everybody's like, it's a BMW. <laughs> it's so And bad. they're right. It's a lot of BMW parts. Yeah. Engine, the B58 transmission, is a, yeah. yep. interior. That B58 is a BMW motor. Yeah. But oh, yeah. Uh, the 2JZ was actually a motor manufactured by Yamaha. Yeah. So that wasn't even a Toyota motor. Uh, development wise, people forget that. Yeah, <laughs> and then the B fifty eight is an inline six uh, turbo. Oh, yeah. that I don't know. I don't know if you've seen, but like even the BMWs, like kids are buying Supras and three forty eyes with B fifty eights and oh, yeah. doing downpipe in a tune and making like five hundred foot pounds of torque. Oh, it's incredible! Like um, at e- ECR or Eagle Canyon uh, mm-hmm. Raceway, Toyota has their own garage there. And oh yeah. I'm, every time I go, they have that program where. You just walk up, sign a waiver, and they'll have a professional instructor. Mm-hmm. They'll drive you around the track in one of the Supras. Yep. It, it is a fun good, experience. Right? Oh, they're amazing. Oh, yeah. They're so I good. Mean, we shoot up there a lot. Like, yeah. we just did the Toyota GR commercial oh, really? for, them for their social media. So we had oh, cool. Corolla, Supra, um, uh, the GR86 also. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're super familiar with that track, and I've gotten to see how all those cars operate and move, and, like, the Supra's an amazing car. So I... It, it's funny to see how much flack it got, oh, yeah. and then it ends up being a kind of industry titan oh, yeah. regarding performance cars like the original Model S. And I've heard, I, I read one article that, so I know like the BMW Z4, which is kind of the base for it. Mm-hmm. I was yep. reading how, so I gotta give Toyota a lot of credit for listening to the customer. So they came out the six feet, or the, sorry, the main transmission, mm-hmm. but they also had to do all the engineering in house from the ground up. Is one article I was reading about. Yeah. So they had to actually do that all themselves. Yep. And they did it just for the fans and the customers, which is awesome. Yeah. And yeah. The last time I was at the track, they, because they have a, the NASA program. So everyone who buys a new Supra or a Toyota 86 get the, one year membership for free for yep. the North America Track Association. And then you also get like a one day actual program. Yeah. So every time we go to the track for the NASA event, you'll see like all the new the new people from Toyota or the new buy owners. Mm-hmm. And I was walking past a couple of Supras last time I was there and I saw like I saw two with the stick shift and it just made me smile. Like, yeah. all right. <laughs> on the track <laughs> here. on the track is they're intended to be. Like keeping the racing spirit alive and getting new people into it is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think Toyota's doing probably the best job Ford's doing an amazing job too and absolutely I get to work with a lot of their athletes and stuff um over the over the years obviously with Ken you oh know yeah. rest in peace um Ken was a big pioneer for that absolutely. On, on the like performance automotive side did a lot for the brand um I had the pleasure of getting to work with him uh, a couple times and oh really what was your favorite project you work with him on we went and shot some stage rally my buddy Matt who pretty much did all of his rally stuff brought me out to shoot some stage rally stuff and so i just got to shoot ken prepping for a stage rally race and his escort and it was absolutely bonkers like how one how fast he is in the car and two just like shooting stage rally is a whole different monster and you like you really gotta love it to go do it and i've only done it a handful of times um what was it like to shoot it or what, what kind of extra you, steps or variables were taken into account? You get your camera, you get your backpack with all your stuff and you start walking. You yeah. walk a couple miles, you find a corner you like, you wait, you wait, you listen for them to come. Uh, sometimes you can hear on the walkie, sometimes you can't. And you, 
pick a good like tree to hide behind in case something goes wrong. You know, <laughs> right. you got to be smart about oh, the yeah. spot and understand the physics of the car and where things can go. Or oh, yeah. maybe the car could float outside here, so you don't want to be out on the outside of the turn. Or yeah. you may get sprayed with rocks if you're at this part, which hurts like hell too. I can imagine. <laughs> so you get a shot, and then um, on a practice day, he'll run back the same direction. You know, so yeah. I get a shot, then I walk, then I get another shot, then I walk get another shot so it's the slow like you're just out in the woods it's crazy yeah. that's awesome it's definitely a unique experience it's got to be almost surreal where you know you're going from the racetrack we got hundreds of, you know thousands of spectators yeah. loud everyone's cheering and they're going to this nice peaceful forest in the middle of nowhere and then every once in a while get a car that you know it comes by and you're, and you're this far away from them you know oh, really the, depending on yeah. how you're shooting it but like again like i like wide angle lenses which means oh, you yeah. got to get close to the action so that real fast whip kind of hectic footage is oh, yeah. what I like to shoot. And um, Matt was the same way. Like, he, he gets the best rally footage of, like, anybody I've seen. So, yeah, it was a real pleasure to go shoot with him again. Um, and that day was, like, one I'll never forget, watching him fly fly through the woods and not a foot away from him doing 80 miles per hour through, like, a, you know, through trees. Yeah. It's crazy. That's incredible. It was cool. It was, uh, he, was, he was a pioneer it for, for – the automotive space and oh, yeah. the skills to back it up for sure. Absolutely. I've lost track of the number of hours of like just staring at the amazing feat that he's yep. able to achieve. Like, yeah. Oh my, it almost looks superhuman. I mean, yeah, you can do that with a vehicle. Like, yeah. That, that whole crew of guys is awesome. All the Gymkhana guys. Um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be friends with a lot of the people that work on those videos and I've gotten to shoot other projects with them. Uh, marketing wise, it's like, there's nothing bigger. I think the Gymkhana series is the most, viewed series on youtube or at one point it was if it's not anymore but um yeah it's nuts so so to that like ford starting with that and now with all the mustang content with guys like rtr and chelsea denofa von gittin jr now adam lz um marketing that and then toyota has you know they use all their drifter guys to come out with these crazy commercials to marketing like they they're keeping performance automotive alive in a world that's pushing towards computers yeah (laughs) yeah well like uh, young kids aren't into cars as much anymore so it's it's interesting like how do we from the performance wise it's like how do we capture them and bring them in but again like i'm now working on the more oem side so it's this kind of crazy cross-up of how do we market to people that just need daily drivers and what do they use in their car nowadays it's almost like it's such a foreign concept to some of the young drivers or the I say the young folks, like so. My my nephew, he was just old enough where he he could have got a driver's license a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and I was having you know dinner with the extended family a little by, while back, and I think he's so he was eighteen, he still didn't have a driver's license. So I'm like, why not? He's like, I want to drive. I'm like, how do you get anywhere? He goes, Uber. I'm like, don't you want the freedom and the feeling of you know taking the parents' car out now? He's like, no, just Uber's fast. I, I order on my phone, done. Yeah, it's like, crazy. Right. That's a, <laughs> that's a common thing I've seen in a lot of younger generation people yeah. they don't want to drive they don't care to drive yeah. they want to uber or like you know they're not them maybe it's their kids maybe it's sooner they're not going to drive yeah. you know like it's gonna be bizarre with full self-driving capabilities yeah. and whatnot which which i'm not anti it at all i think yeah. a lot of people get very anti that i think it's cool i'd rather sit and yeah be on my phone or something and have a car drive me to destination to destination or get work done but efficiency it, it's I still, I still want to keep my race cars of and course. be able to go to the racetrack yeah. too. So, it's, a, it's all about the situation. I mean, I think 
it's, it's advanced a lot. Eventually, it will replace a lot of jobs, but new jobs are always created. I mean, it's kind of a cliche. It's like, yeah, you're going to destroy jobs, but you're going to create so many more. Yeah, yeah. That we don't even know exist. So, I like, with trucking, that's going to revolutionize them. Mm-hmm. But with automotive, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, one of those me- I'm one of those mentalities where, like, when I'm behind the, the wheel, I want the experience. Like, yeah. I, I love, like, even if I'm going, like, for just going to Fort Worth for a day for a customer meeting, mm-hmm. like, just shifting through the gears is just, it's a fun experience for me. For sure. But at the same time, I know, if, like, for some folks, you have to commute every day, mm-hmm. especially if you have a stick shift. That can get old when you're in bumper to bumper for an hour or something like that. Yeah. Which I would also argue stick is perfect because you're forced to pay attention. You can't really, you know, be on the phone or multitasking when you got to disengage that clutch, you know, every, know. Couple, every couple of feet. But we're purists. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. We're dying but breed. Yeah. Like, most people, yeah. they, they want to do the least amount as yeah, possible. Exactly. And even me today, like, I've, I've got my drift car now that's just this visceral, violent, raw, no assist. Yeah, mechanical. Yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a uh, Corvette engine stuffed in a 240SX. That's so awesome. It's a, a tin can chassis yeah. that weighs 2,300 <laughs> pounds with this torque, torque monster in it. Yeah, it's, it's an assault on your senses. Yeah. So, like, I go to the track and I get that. I'm okay with hopping in my SUV. Oh, yeah. I'm just <laughs> it, So, it's like I can kind of... Best of both worlds. Yeah, I kind of split yeah. it. I, I've got a 370Z that I also, like, daily drive. So it's oh, like nice. I get my kind of, like, yeah. rip-around sports car feel. Um, so I, I got the luxury to float a little oh, yeah. bit. Yeah, got, got some options. Absolutely. Some of my buddies keep uh, telling me I eventually need to succumb to buying a bigger vehicle <laughs> and just to transport logistics for some work stuff that we yeah. do with my tech company. And I'm like, okay, kind of just be a smart alec. I'm like, what can I get with a stick shift? And like, it's a very rare uh, Porsche Cayman where they had a stick shift for it. <laughs> I think they only imported like 253 in the U.S. Like oh, jeez. V8 twin turbo. Like, good luck finding them. But it does exist. I'm like, I love that. Yeah, but like, that's right up my alley. Was like, that would be, because I want to, you know, part of me always wants to have a unique, cool car. And I'm such a diehard stick, fi- stick shift fan. It's like, a stick shift SUV, that would be pretty, with a Porsche, I mean. That would be fun. Be cool. <laughs> you could be like me and just buy a whole bunch. Like, I've got two Nissans that aren't that expensive, and then yeah. I've got my SUV that's reliable, and, and it's an Audi, so it's a yeah. lot nicer. So I've I've opted for the, like, instead of the one yeah. very expensive car, I've got, got three it. cars that two are, aren't that expensive, yeah. and then one's semi-nice. Yeah. Not semi-nice. It is nice. And then what was it? So what were you driving? So back when you – so you're working for yourself for a little while. And then, how are you, curiosity? How did you keep finding those new jobs? You know, back in the day when you had your uh, first consulting firm, or when you worked for yourself, were you, were you doing cold calling, referrals, Facebook? No, man, I how was. Grow I, it? it was all referrals. That's incredible. Yeah, I um, I would reach out here and there, but like obviously, social media started to become a thing, mm-hmm. and being at least with the racing and stuff, it was yeah. it was, uh, and wakeboarding too. Like I got super into filming, wakeboarding, and, and boating stuff. So. People with boats have money and companies. Oh, yeah. People in racing have money and companies or sponsors yep. are there and need True. coverage. Or uh, It all kind of spiderwebbed from that. And I never I never did as good as I should have probably because I was so focused on just making the content and filming it and editing it. Um, but it was all, I like to call it uh, pull marketing yeah. you know, versus push marketing, like yeah. pushing myself on, you need this, you need that, you need this. Uh, it's great and it works oh, yeah. from a – from a perspective of, of video, I always liked having clients gravitate towards me because yeah. then they were coming to me need, in need of something instead yeah. of me convincing them that I needed it, which, oh, yeah. you know, sometimes it's, hey, we need this, and you can convince them, you know, 
yes, you need this, but you should do this, this, yeah. and this. There's there's always the upsell, right? Of course. But, and depending um, on, it's all about what is their business or what does their brand want to achieve. If they yeah. want to get a certain result, you might need to add in extra shots or, you know, a different scenery mm-hmm. or a certain type of different editing methodology or a performance. Yeah, more so, content. Yeah, exactly. It's all, you know, everybody's trying to sell a product and oh. experience, and it's yeah, like, absolutely. how does it all fit into that sales funnel, which I, I was lucky to understand that decently well out of school um but that's i'll call myself a creative but like i've always looked at it uh through the eyes of like what's going to generate good roi for the company because exactly. i want them to feel good about the money that they're investing and what yep. i'm doing for them keep, keep customers happy they'll keep you happy mm-hmm. and then what was it like when you started to work for a, co- a couple other consultants or you worked with another s- uh, small shop in Dallas, or what was it like to kind of pivot from you know only working for yourself to working with a team? Or yeah. What was the process like? Um, my my kind of you know uh, storyline is is filming Formula Drift for a few years. Um, Nate and I have our shop together. We're doing racing stuff. I'm kind of just like a one off like freelance videographer d- taking on projects you know from the start to the end to full fruition. Um, and I ended up starting to shoot more boat stuff, and that's how I met some of my old business partners. They would call me to shoot for them, and eventually I started uh, a company with these guys. We started, like, a full-service agency. Oh, cool. So I went from filming racing to now being working with this agency and still filming some of that stuff, but now my focus was on this whole ecosystem of marketing because we did website, we did graphic design, we did SEO. Oh, really? And video was just, like, a part of that, and that's what I was, you know, in charge of as the partner in the company. So, um, but that we took that and kind of built out, again, the whole ecosystem of how marketing should be. So it was new to me ish because i was only just focused on video mm-hmm. but i knew that uh, it was an important part of a bigger piece and so we all just started working together and decided you know what let's build let's make a company and build it up to you know provide the service in full to clients and that's what we did awesome and then was it in a more expansive or was it more topics than automotive or what kind of stuff did you film or yeah what was like it like working with new material or new um, subjects it was cool like uh it w- it wasn't automotive um Outside of like, we did a lot of stuff for some boat brands, which was cool. So it's like I still had, you know, a hobby that I was familiar with working with, and and my business partners were familiar with too. Um, but a lot of it was it was just corporate video. Yeah. You know, I mean, we shot stuff for nail companies, law firms, more like like, like promotional videos for their businesses for mm-hmm. them to advertise. Okay, cool. Yeah, it'd be marketing videos or yeah. internal videos, or you know, we'd be doing a website and even us video so again it was just filling in that whole ecosystem of what a company needed or what problem they needed solved yeah so it, it was for anything and everything basically so how did you film working on a boat so you just have did you have a second boat with a camera or was it a drone or what was that process like yeah i mean i used a lot of drones i would uh i would get you know it was funny because we'd film all these brand new boats uh that weren't even out yet so oh, really? i'd have 10 of them and my team and they'd just be like go so I've got millions of dollars in boats. I'd take one and I'd rig like this camera suspension rig to where I'd sit and shoot with a remote control pointing the camera at the other boat that oh. people were surfing or wakeboarding behind. So it was just literally we'd go to some lake in, you know, in California or somewhere in that area for a week and just shoot all day every day with all their athletes and stuff. It was it was a grind, but it was it was fun. That's awesome. 
it was cool. It was cool. We had a bunch of toys, a bunch of gear, a bunch of uh, a bunch of my buddies that would come out and help play, and uh, it, it kicked our butt every year. But the content always came out good. And I think I might skip over this, or might have to go back. When did you first build your first dedicated camera car? Where you had the giant—I forget the proprietary name—but the the crane on top of the car. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I call it a camera car, yeah. you know. But that's why I tell people it's a crane. It sits on top of carts. Um, so while I was at that, while we were building our agency, I was still filming uh, automotive stuff here and there, um, but the. Basically, the crane, the camera car that I built, a company called Moto Crane came out and built the crane system. And normally, you'd have to create that yourself. So, like the guys that did this stuff, they had teams of fabricators. They were big companies. These camera cars cost a half million dollars to run. Oh my gosh! And yeah, it's they're half a million for a car. Yeah, and they're building them all custom themselves. Yeah. So it's all the crane and equipment, and they're putting them on Raptors and CTSVs, and oh so yeah. it's this big, big investment, right? And then I see Moto Crane launch their first crane that comes out, which at the time I think it was a nine foot arm. Uh, you could suction cup it to the top of a roof and strap it on to any cars what they advertised. Yeah. And I remember looking at them like, that's cool. I want one of those one day because you know, I'd only seen these camera cars in movies and stuff. And yeah. Like, that's what I want to do. So I'm working at the agency, working with them, still filming stuff. Um, then Moto Crane comes out second iteration of the arm this one much better much uh it's longer it's got more power um and financially at the time i was like i kind of did what i did with my red i was oh like yeah. all right i'm gonna <laughs> send it and i want to build one of these things because yeah. it'll be good for me it'll be good for our company to advertise um and when, you, when you say more power is it just uh better hydraulics to move it up or down or yeah or more torque because yeah. you so this new one which i i literally still have to this day i think i bought it years ago now um it uh it's a 12 foot arm that reaches out over the car 12 feet 12 feet is that so is that from the center of the car or how is that measured from the center oh my gosh so you got an, a couple more feet off the back with like counterbalanced a, yep oh. counterbalance it's got a wing it kind of balances wind resistance while the arms out to the side so really? it's all sorts of crazy like physics and stuff to keep the, the motors from working too yeah. hard so you counterbalance you know, front and back, so that way the motors don't have too much torque applied on them, yeah. don't have to work as hard, and then from side to side, you have that wing to balance that out. And what was it like installing? What was the first thing you, uh, vehicle you installed on? Uh, so I, I remember I ordered the arm. Again, I did like my red. I was just like, I'm going to figure this out, figured out how to finance it, um, and basically put my deposit down, and I think it was like three months for them to get it to me because they I wasn't one of the first people to buy it but I was one of the early adopters so they were going yeah. through manufacturing rounds and I bought it and I was like crap I need to put this on a car um, and I wanted to build something cool like everybody usually puts them on SUVs and yeah. which is cool um, but I wanted to build something that was going to be marketable and like whenever I posted it up people would freak out over yeah. something that was fast because I had all these drifting clients so I was like I need can't cheat drifting you can't yeah. just you know follow these cars and make it look fast you can't speed yeah. it up because then it looks weird you have to have something that's capable so i ended up buying a 2003 evo 8 oh really for the camera car yeah nice which 
I got I got crucified by the Evo community because <laughs> I drove holes in the roof and built a custom rack for it. <laughs> People were not happy about that. But at the time, it, it was the most capable and I like to say quickest camera car in the world. Yeah. You know, now you got track hawks with arms on them and stuff. But oh, really? Yeah. But regarding capability, you know, the, the chassis was it was light, it was all wheel drive, made about four hundred horsepower. Uh, BC Racing ended up making some custom shocks for for the car. Oh, yeah. I had a buddy's wrap shop, uh, Fortune Wraps. They sponsored it, wrapped the whole car. Nice. We had lightweight lightweight wheels on it. It was really the most capable car you could chase anything with because of how quick it turned and maneuvered. Yeah, what was the like? What was the weight distribution like? Because that's a pretty light car, and then you're putting the crane on it. I actually like, don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know what the weight distribution was. Or but what? How did it feel? I guess like. How did it handle differently once you bolt that thing on? I mean, it's definitely not as good as when you don't have a crane and yeah. four <laughs> film dudes in the car operating stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, again, BC helped us out by getting us custom valves and, and, and springs for these shocks that really, oh, really? Made, made the car as best as it could be. And I like I true, truly believe that, like, that car at its peak was the fastest, quickest camera car in the world at the time. And, and we did some crazy stuff with it. That's awesome. And tell me about the crew that we need to operate it. You say, so you say you got four guys in the car to make it all come together or make it work in real time? Yep, correct. So you've got a driver. Um, you have the arm operator, like the crane operator. So they're swinging and moving the crane up and down. They got a little remote control, I'm guessing, yeah, to a big actuate board. everything. It's like a giant Game Boy, basically. Oh, really? Two joysticks yeah. for, for your Y and your X axis. Yeah. Um, then you have the head operator, which you have a gimbal on. Holding the camera, they're yeah. operating the gimbal, pointing the camera. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're swinging an arm, you have somebody else pointing the camera. Jeez. And then you have an AC assistant camera, which those guys, uh, you know, an AC on a movie set, those are the guys that are pulling focus. They're doing the focus and marks and zoom oh, and all yeah. that. So while I'm swinging the arm, you know, the head tech is is pointing the camera while the AC is making sure it's all in focus while the driver is making sure we get the shot and we don't die. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of things going on. It's, it's pretty hectic and it's funny because, you know, obviously I've, I, I love driving. I love drifting. I love driving race cars, but I hate riding passenger oh, really? in cars. So yeah. I literally built my worst nightmare <laughs> by building a car and I didn't think it through. So we go on these shoots where we're you know chasing drift cars through explosions and stuff. And I'm sitting there, trying to operate the arm or the camera and oh my gosh. Uh, uh, at the same time i'm like trying not to i'm trying to focus on the shot and not look up Man. because we're flying on some racetrack and i'm scared we're gonna crash it, oh, was, it was hectic oh my gosh that's <laughs> to say so the exciting. least and then was it built in such ways that you just plug on any camera and you run wires down to the controls or yeah pretty much like the the arm system is its own little ecosystem and then you have a mount for the gimbal you run. There's two different types of gimbals we run from two different manufacturers, depending on how big the camera package is. And you just kind of know little ins and outs. It's like, okay, it's a red camera and we're going to use the DJI Ronin 2 for this. So we've got these little plugs and things for start, stop and operating, or we use a Movi XL, which is three flies, big gimbal that you can run huge cameras on and say it's an Ari on that one. So I've got all sorts of plugs and cables and things to adapt it to whatever we need. Cool. And then what was your first shoot with that setup? Uh, the first shoot was actually a Roush shoot. 
Oh, really? Um, yeah, we went out all the way to Ohio, and actually Aaron Kaufman from Gas Monkey was the, the stunt driver on that. No way. Um, yeah, for, uh, I think it was called a Nightmare Edition F-150. Yeah. Some, like, crazy supercharged truck, and um, the city was Hamilton, Ohio. We did two overnight shoots, and I remember driving all, trailering the Evo all the way up there. Uh, my buddy Jordan, uh, he, who lives in Utah, he had... He owned a similar system, and he actually, I flew him out to come, like, kind of work with us and operate with us since it was kind of the first job that we had done. Yeah. Um, so he came out and, and drove while I operated the RM, and we actually had, like, their own AC and head tech operate. Um, basically, like, the DP, director of photography, for the commercial, he wanted to operate the head. So we were just there to, like, provide the camera car and tech everything, and then we just ripped around this little town from, like, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., two nights in a row chasing this truck around. It was crazy. Oh, it's awesome. So it was cool. And then what was your favorite shoot or what was the most memorable shoot that you had with that Evo setup? Uh, I think the most memorable is probably one we did with uh, our buddies at RTR, uh, which is Vaughn Gittin Jr. and Chelsea Denofa. They're the pro drifters yeah. that, that run RTR, and they're, they're similar to Roush in a way that, like, nowadays – uh, you can go to a Ford dealership and buy a Mustang, and you can go, okay, I want the Stage 3 yeah. RTR package, which is a supercharger, a body kit, the wheels, RTR suspension, or you can do it with a Ranger. Nice. All sorts of stuff. They got really cool stuff, and I really think they have the best packages for Mustangs right now. Yeah. Uh, anyways, we went out to West Virginia with them to shoot uh, a video called Bomb Track, mm-hmm. and it's basically, um, they also have a brand called Fun ha- Haver, which is this, like, off-road uh, performance, still drifting, like, lifestyle brand. They sell clothes and stuff, too. Um, and it's all, again, about them having fun. So yeah. it was this fun haver RTR shoot. We went to this uh, training facility in West Virginia that had a wa- racetrack on it, but they trained a lot of, like, FBI, um, military training and stuff there. So we did – we were jumping Baja trucks. There's drift cars and, like, the big shot at the end. We have uh, – Lawrence, it's an ultra four truck is what it is. Um, jump over Chelsea and Vaughn's drift cars as they're drifting. And there's just a massive amount of pyrotechnics behind them. Oh, this really? Big explosion. Yeah, it was nuts. Um, Michael Bay shared it on his Instagram story. Oh, that's awesome. So they put the stamp that, yeah. that we were <laughs> legit with the pyrotechnics on it. Um, so. Yeah, I just remember doing that. And we're like... The cars are drifting, and the camera car is driving out in front of them while it's happening. So it's yeah. like we got to make sure we're clear of the truck jumping over, so we don't get hit by the truck, and we got to be out of the way of the explosion. And yeah, it was just a crazy couple days. Was there a lot of pressure? I mean, there's an infinite amount of explosives. How much pressure was it to get it done in one or two shots, or how much extra explosive? Was we there? did two. We knew there would be two takes, but yeah. like we we were shooting a whole video, so like we were already through a whole day of like. 80 mile per hour drifting with us in front of them. So the shot itself, it's funny. It wasn't as like scary driving wise because we were doing crazy stuff. We did an overnight shoot where we shot a whole separate video basically in the dark where we had their cars all lit up with uh, their sponsor type S's lighting and stuff. That was crazy. It looked like Tron. Oh, cool. Um, that was probably the scariest one yeah. because we like couldn't see, yeah. you know, we had to go <laughs> off of headlights and we're doing 80, 90 miles per hour on a track with this oh thing. Um, so the explosion was more of a timing thing, and, like, we got to nail it. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, we got it. I remember Chelsea was in the car behind, and he said the explosion would blow the doors open on his Mustang every time it went off. 
really? feels that like crazy and huh. we could feel it from inside the car and we're like 50 yards in front if we time it right so it was, it was intense for sure that's yeah. definitely the most i think memorable with the camera car that that we experienced that's awesome yeah, yeah. i can't mention all that pressure it's like you get two opportunities to make this yeah. shot work those guys you know I'm, I'm lucky to have those guys call me because it's always like the craziest most fun but also the most sketchy stuff but <laughs> it's always like these crazy clips that we get from everything um, we just did another video with them which was basically like the version two of tron we did it at a place called drift mansion uh, it's in uh i can't remember i think it's missouri um we flew in brought the crane, put it on one of Vaughn's supercharged trucks, and basically did two overnight shoots again. Lauren jumped over the backyard of a house and over the pool and through the fence. And oh, no way. There was a crazy jump over them, too, and more pyro. And T-Pain made a song for the video. It was just, oh, nice. Uh, they're just always up to crazy, fun stuff, and it's cool. They've really built cool branding and cool content around it, and I'm lucky to be a part of it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And speaking of cool branding, tell me a little bit more about what inspired you to kind of jumpstart and join and really help foster the Wolfpack Agency. Yeah. So, so my current role now, I'm the uh, executive vice president of the Wolfpack Agency. Um, you know, from to go through timeline, like built my camera car, uh, wanted to get back into automotive heavily, sold my bit of the company that I had built, left, was focusing on the camera car, which I built my brand Speed Patrol. Mm-hmm. Um, running around doing stuff like that all the time which was uh, a lot of fun and uh, I was actually in Dubai with one of my best friends Pepper Yandel he was living out there he's a car photographer um, takes some of the best car photos in the world Um, he brought me out to shoot a video with a Lamborghini and this PPF company so we were out there running around shooting Lambos and using the Lambo to get around and nice um, I went out there and I was like, who do I know in Dubai besides Pepper? And kind of the long story short of it is my current business partner, Nick, was out there working for an agency running their automotive branch in the Middle East. Um, And I had been friends with his wife um, just through like various people that we knew when we were younger. And I knew that they had gotten married, you know, a while ago. And I had met Nick, but Nick would uh, have Melissa, his wife, call me and help like staff events or stuff that he was doing she'd call and be like hey nick wants to know if you know any people in this city or that city to run this audi drive experience or do it or whatever he was up to at the time and so through proxy him and i had kind of been working together or i'd been helping him out and they were living in dubai because nick was running the uh the middle eastern program over there for the agency was at so we went to dinner um Played it off, stayed in touch. He ended up moving back to Texas, uh, wanted to start his own thing, um, prepped me on it, and basically they, uh, Wolfpack acquired Speed Patrol, mm-hmm. their entity, and he brought me on board as the EVP. We've got another partner, Megan, who's our chief creative officer. She's in LA. She's amazing, um, makes some amazing stuff. And, uh, yeah, we hit the ground running November of, la- not last year, 21 oh awesome we announced you know the wolf pack to the world and it's been you know a grind of a year through 22 and now we're just it's been crazy we've, we've launched and we're busier than ever that's great and so especially so what was the very first project you guys worked on together what was the very first uh, deal um i'm trying to think we've done a lot recently 
big and small. Like we've we've worked with uh, a company that you know basically acquires you can sell your vehicle to them or you can sell your used vehicle before you trade. Like that was one of our first clients. Oh, cool. Um, we did some cool stuff with BMW. Oh wow, really? Uh, yeah, GT4 race team to where I flew out to Thermal Camp and and shot like some promo with a race team there with a buddy of ours, Jordan going over to Europe to run uh, DTM. Wow. Um, That's got to be exciting. We've got a lot of things in the works with big manufacturers. Um, Like I mentioned, we've been working and doing camera car support, production support for Toyota, for um, uh, Autonomous 18-wheeler company. We shot some stuff with, too. So, um, And then a lot of experiential marketing as well. So. So what's it like working with a big OEM, and how do you how do you get those introductions to those massive prestigious companies? I mean, it's just it's just track record, right? So like, uh, Nick's Nick's Wolfpack is Nick's baby. He's had that vision, you know, for a long time um, of who he wants to bring on. So between you know me, him, and Megan, we've worked with a lot of big OEMs and uh, all in our own kind of uh, realms. You know, the big thing for us we wanted to do was build an where the creatives are at the table um, we're not charging you for 20 account directors to pay for our big fancy building yeah. we house everyone in we're lean we're mean we're you know seal team six we go in we execute um, and bring the people to the table that get stuff done instead of just marking up a whole bunch of third-party yeah, contractors and yeah and we have strategic partnerships all over the industry so between all the people that I know, all the people that Nick's worked with, all the people that Megan's worked with, we we came into this with a reputation, um, and all of us kind of having different sectors down to where us banding together and knowing who we know now, it's been we just hit the ground running and haven't stopped. Yeah, what was the biggest challenge you guys in the field? first come across as the company starting to grow and develop and take out more complex projects. I mean, building, launching a company in a pandemic. Yeah. It's right? not easy. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, I, I think our biggest brag is we did this all during a pandemic yeah. when nobody, everyone was scared to spend marketing oh, yeah. dollars. Nobody knew what was going to happen next. And we were able to thrive during that. That's rare. It's, it's rare. It says a lot about our team, the people we work with. Um, and, Really, it's it's all all we're trying to do is solve problems. You know, we're not selling fancy, shining things. We we go to the table, and we're creative problem solvers at the end of the day. Yeah. So the pandemic, in our eyes, was a issue that we wanted to help the OEMs or just uh, any other company that we work with solve problems during. So yeah. create innovative ways to market, innovative ways to get people to be in front of the brands or consume the brand. And then, out of curiosity, so what's your favorite project thus far that you're allowed to disclose or talk about? Oh, man. I know you've had a lot of really good stories. I say, there's like, <laughs> we're working on a lot, of, a lot of cool stuff I can't talk about right now. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, the Thermal Club project with BMW was super fun. Um, getting to work on experiential marketing now, to go back to my background, you know, I've always just been uh, video, directing video. I started my first company, and that was kind of my first taste and run at. And I was there for five years. You know, yeah. I got the grasp of the full marketing ecosystem. So, but that was 
that's just a traditional agency that's just like, hey, we offer SEO, we offer social media, and we'll make you a video to where now we're we're going into buildings and headquarters and meeting with executive teams that are asking us or saying they want to collab with us on how they can shift and change brands, you know, and shift and change consumer bases. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's not just, oh, we need a video. Yeah. It's, uh, again, a whole, an even bigger ecosystem of, of creating change in these companies and actually trying to do better for, for to get new consumers. Yeah. Them. So that's one of the biggest challenges in marketing is expanding your customer base and then trying to shift it mm-hmm. to a different demographic. I mean, yeah. I, I remember for decades, Cadillac. It used to be, you know, one of the most innovative companies. They used to have the best tech or best features before any other brand. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, over the years, it kind of became a cliche where they were tailored to more of the elderly folks who were buying their vehicles. Yeah. And I remember the, one of the biggest innovate, uh, marketing innovations was they teamed up with the uh, teamed up with the production team of the Matrix mm-hmm. just for that because they had a huge what was it the Art and Renaissance chapter of their art and design, which is what I think it was what they called that iteration of the, of the brand. Mm-hmm. And all, like, the first CTSV, I think, for a while was in the movie. Yeah. And all that advertising helped them decrease the age of the, of the average consumer by about 10 years, which, you know, that's, that's a huge achievement. And that's the stuff I love about it. Like, and, and that's a, a great example of what I'm talking about. You yeah. know, let's let's put this car in this movie yeah. and get eyes on it under this light. You know, that's the experiential side that's super fun that, that they're getting to do that I really enjoy. It's, it's fascinating, the art and science behind all the product placements. I know, like, when Fast and Furious first came out, mm-hmm. have you ever watched, a, I think it's a Rich Lee, Lieberman? He, he was the technical advisor for the movie. I might be butchering his name. but That name sounds familiar, but... It was his super in the movie. Okay, okay. Yeah, so he was the guy telling people, like, hey, this is what's really going on with street racing. That's cool. And on his YouTube channel, which is really great, I recommend people check it out. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I want to watch that. It, he has so many detailed, good stories. One of my favorite ones is when you're talking about the business aspect of the movie. Mm-hmm. And when they were first making the movie, they had a script, and they were going around. They go, "Hey, we need you know nitrous. We need glow. We you know for the neon under the car. We need yeah. all these things." So he went to all the manufacturers. He was saying, "Hey, we're making a movie. Will you give us some stuff?" They're like, "We don't even know who you are. We we don't care if it's made by Universal. Just no. We're not mm-hmm. going to give you anything for free." So they had to actually buy everything. So like a lot of the gauges in the movie, they're just you know cardboard cutouts. You know, they're not yeah, real. Yeah, I've, I've <laughs> seen all the the kind of Easter eggs in Fast and the Furious. Like sometimes, like some of the cars that are made for process trailers like you yeah. look and there's no brakes on them yeah you know exactly. like uh, i think that's the same with um the vw golf uh yeah 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 i think it was that one the white one brakes and yeah. the gauges will be off it's 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 funny to go oh, back yeah. and look at and then he was telling like during that interview he said then when they started the second fast and furious movie when he called the manufacturers they were throwing products at them because oh, he was saying like for the particular people who don't know nitrous is a brand or nos sorry is the brand name behind yeah. the biggest manufacturer and he was telling them after the first movie, he was working with the manufacturer to get you know free stuff for the next movie, which they of course gave to him for free. They were telling Rich like later in his career, he's like, yeah, we couldn't keep products ahead of demand for over three years. Yeah, because like, they they astonishing. Ba- they effectively made uh, it's like Kleenex, right? Yeah, Kleenex a, is a, a, a brand. brand. Yes, and tissue paper is what you do. Exactly. So it's 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 funny because it's like a pet peeve for some people. They're like, oh, do you have NOS? It's like. It's nitrous, yeah. <laughs> and and Nas is the company, but that's that's one of those quirky marketing things yeah. that happened to where everybody called it Nas after that yeah. movie. I mean, that's 
I mean, some would say that's the pinnacle achievement of marketing is when you could have the, the actual brand be synonymous with the category. Yeah. Like no, no one uses a, no one searches for something. They Google something. Yep. It's just because that company and that brand has built up such a reputation where just the act of searching information, information on the internet, that's their brand mm-hmm. and they invented it. Mm-hmm. Like that's incredible to do, especially yep. the automotive space. I mean, now it's everyone, if you're going to use the brand, it's Moss. That's all you use. That's a good good point to, you know, that I, I honestly haven't thought about. Like, I've, I've acknowledged that everybody says Nos instead of Nitrous, but oh yeah. <laughs> I haven't really thought through that, like, that is attributed to that movie. Oh, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And, and, of course, all the cars in the movies. Is, of course, the, you know, people see the cars, they want to go out and buy them. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's fascinating how important and how, how much of a tool marketing is with product placements yeah. and all of that coming together. Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the uh, at the end of the day, like our job is to create irrational loyalty to these yeah. brands that we work with, people okay. that are gonna come, stick around, and and not leave. You know, that's always our goal. Oh, absolutely, and, and it's just what cool, quirky, fun way can we accomplish that? Yeah, it's just all about what's gonna make the best long term brand connection for the best customer experience. Yeah, for sure, and and with the new role too it's it's been really neat to shift from you know um heading just video to now producing directing video but being involved with these big grand plans for for companies so what what was it like making that pivotal kind of career move or that new role going from you know being right behind the camera right behind the editing screen to more of a leadership position what was that process like and it's about it I'd say like, you know, at my first company, I was, I was in a leadership position. We had employees, you know, but I, I was hyper-focused on content, um, but still saw what went on, um, for these, these customers we market to, but now it's, it's going to these big, these are big companies that we get to work with and, and being put in a position to, uh, learn, but it's felt like more affirming what I know, you know? Um, and having such good partners that we all we all learn from each other. We're all uh, we all collaborate very well, and we go to these companies and collaborate with them. Yeah. It's it's been a really fun process. It's one that if you told me you know six or seven years ago I'd be doing it would sound really daunting and yeah. scary, <laughs> you know. But I, I I eat, sleep, and breathe this space, yeah. you know. So I'm just excited to shift um, cultures and, and trends in the space that are going to affect, you know, kids down the road, like my oh, yeah. kids, my, my nieces and nephews, and kind of look ahead to the future and, and provide solutions all the way down there, not yeah. just in the now. Absolutely. What's the biggest challenge that the company has come across thus far as you guys are growing and developing? Um, uh, again, it was definitely the pandemic and things move a lot slower at these levels, working at these levels. So, um, a lot of meetings, a lot of, uh, people to go through, um, when making big decisions like this, companies have to vet, vet things and, and plan accordingly and doing, causing a giant wave need a, a giant catalyst you know and that oh, takes yeah. time and planning and um, same with you know we're working with new brands that are launching and have total and full control over it in collaboration with them oh, cool. and it's it's 
a lot of planning and, and um, testing, you know. Yeah. So that's probably, I think, the difficult thing. And I say difficult being that, like, we just we care a lot. We want to make things, we want to do it the right way the first yeah. time. So uh, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to perform. Absolutely. So, but it's a, you know, it's obviously a good thing. Absolutely. And then tell me a little bit more about your um, your supplement company that you helped co-found. Yeah. Um, so Tenfold. And that's for folks at home. How's that spelled? It's T-I-N? Yeah. T-I-N-F-O-L-D. Um, Tenfold is something I became a part of during, I was at my first company around, basically around the time I was building the camera car. Um, my business partner, Jordan, he, uh, Basically, him and I went to high school together. We were yeah. buddies in high school. We kind of lost touch. He he went on to start uh, working with the Olympic bobsled team. Oh wow! He's an amazing athlete. Um, and again, we've been friends for a long time. So he was doing that. I was doing my film stuff, and we actually ran into each other. I was uh, I was meeting up with my dad um, and helping him like unload something in a new new apartment he was moving into. And my dad was telling me about this guy that he would meet up with. Um, at like 6 a.m. every morning. He's like, I always see this guy. He's on a bobsled team. He's always going training early, and I like to get up early and go work out. Yeah. And so there's this guy named Jordan, and he's got this big pit bull that is named Bruce that I love, and I see him all the time. You need to meet him. You need to meet him. I'm like, yeah, cool. Like, yeah. you see him, or like, I don't know. Like, tell me when you're hanging out with him. Yeah. So I go help him uh, unload something out of his truck to take up to his apartment. He's like, oh, my buddy Jordan's down there. I turn around, and it's Jordan who I've known since basically junior high and him and my dad had been like, you know, going on walks or, um, they they were friends and they were living in the same complex. So, um, through that Jordan at the time had owned a couple, uh, supplement business, uh, not businesses, uh, supplement stores. Mm -hmm. He had a few supplement stores and he was making formulas for people, uh, for some of these bigger companies. Like I, I think Redcon C4, don't call me on that. I can't remember who he's worked with. But um, I went to get some uh, supplements from him, and uh, he was going to get get me like a, a training program to start following. Oh, cool. So I meet up with him, we catch up, and he tells me about the supplement brand he's trying to launch, and it's a pre workout that at the time was unflavored, the big thing that was like raw ingredients, oh, yeah. super duper healthy. We ended up putting flavor in it later just because. Some yeah, some people yeah, couldn't yeah. stomach it. It wasn't that bad, but it was uh it was definitely for like the hardcore gym people. Oh yeah, uh, our product line now is amazing and super healthy and tastes great. But um, yeah, at the time it had no flavor. But he goes, hey, the big thing here is I have a patent on a magnetic scooper that sticks to the lid. Really? It's like, all right, I'm all ears. You know, supplement space is super saturated. Oh yeah, um, a lot of them. It's so competitive. It's crazy. But, um, and then how's that banquet work? Is it so? Because I know traditionally, if you buy a big old tub of protein, mm-hmm. you get that cheap little plastic scoop. It's somewhere in there. Yeah, you, you're yeah, digging. Yeah, you're yeah, getting stuff all over your hands. Someday you'll find it. Or like the <laughs> pre workout bottle. You know, it's it's either the protein where you you got to reach your whole arm in yep, there, yeah. or it's a pre workout bottle to where you jamming your fingers in there and trying to rip it out and inevitably spilling like half the product. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Taking too much of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that, that piqued my interest and we were talking about, he just needed marketing stuff. And I was like, look, I could, I could help you with marketing yeah. here are my prices. And he was like, what if we did like a partnership? What if yeah. I gave you equity in the company? And so 
uh, that's how that partnership started. Again, it was while I was at my other company um, or, or basically in transition selling my shares from that company. I had the camera card going on um, and we just went up and running. And so I had camera car. I was making content for what is now my own product company, which yeah. was like a whole different shift to have a marketing agency and then shift to uh, a company that I'm selling my own product yeah. now. And now I'm making content for my own product that's going online. So it was kind of cool to be on that side of it. And yeah, uh, yeah we're still, still jamming. We've got a great, you know, user base. We're selling product and, um, yeah, we still have the patent. We've got some people looking at it, which is really cool. Absolutely. So well, hopefully we licensing re- licensing deals. Are nice. Say yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, if we could license it, that would yeah, be the yeah. ideal thing. Or if we do a buyout with a a major uh, company, which we've got a few looking at yeah. at it right now, it'd be great. So absolutely. I mean, heck, that's all. All life is about is solving problems. Yeah, yeah, and and again, Jordan. This is that was Jordan's baby. You know, he yeah. was the genius to it. But it was cool to another take another venue or, or way of, okay, I know how to market. I know how to shoot videos. Now I can get equity in a company for doing yep. it. So that's awesome. We came to an agreement that I would, you know, do all the content and marketing for X amount of units sold. And after that, we figure it out from there. But at that point, you know, I own this much equity in the company and the patent. And here we are still. And what was Selling it like? It. What was it like going from shooting automotive, where um, you know traditionally you got really fast cars going around 80, 120 miles an hour mm-hmm. plus, and then it, I'm guessing is it more stationary when you're shooting film and doing marketing for supplements, or you get pictures of like barbells dropping next to it, or what? What's that like working with that new me- or different medium? Well, it was cool because um, I have you know kind of a style I developed. And to me, like all the fitness stuff, like I think of Nike commercials, oh, yeah. it's similar to automotive in, in that, like, I like to shoot very fast paced things, you know, that are quick cuts, lots of oh, movement. Yeah. And that's all a lot of things, you know, from Nike or any other big sports brand are. So the crossover there was great. And I got to kind of put my own little flavor on it, which made our marketing content a little different than everybody else in the supplement space. So um, it wasn't like a weird transition at all. And I, I enjoyed doing it. That's awesome. I mean, what's the biggest challenge? Are you guys trying to go to direct to consumer, or do you go? Are you going for uh, store shelves and traditional brick and mortar distribution? Or? We have some brick and mortar that we like wholesale to. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them are people that Jordan knows, yeah. um, and and any like gym that wants to sell it, like yeah. we, you know, we have partnerships like that. But most of it's direct to consumer. So yeah. they, we market online. They come to our website and they're buying from us directly. Excellent. Yeah, that's one of the. Uh, like every Shark Tank episode, when it comes to a beverage or some type of you know, product that you consume, mm-hmm. they always say like, "What's the most difficult part part of you know launching the business and expanding?" And when the entrepreneurs say, "Oh yeah, we want to get into a convenience store, or a, you know, a grocery store," sharks are always like, "That is the hardest thing to do." Yeah, <laughs> and we've had those meetings. Like we've yeah. we've been offered shelf space on some big, 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 big uh, company shelves, but yeah. like the way those deals are structured are crazy. It's difficult. Yeah. And you're, you're very exposed monetarily. Like if, if your stuff doesn't sell, like return it, which is, they're not, they're not taking the hit. You are. Exactly. A lot of people don't realize these type of business structures and they also don't realize like, it's funny in real, uh, one of my friends is real estate and I always joke with him. The most valuable real estate is inside of Walmart. Like per, per square footage, the amount of money you have to have to place a product there 
if their team of marketing managers all because it's all it's all based on science like how the store is laid out where on the where on the shelf not only you know x-axis but y-axis where will that product be the most efficiently placed so they can move the greatest number of units yeah it's as it's fascinating the amount of research that goes into that oh yeah and walmart's savage Oh, I've heard. Yeah, it, take it or leave it. But I mean, it's like um, they'll go get people's product made like oh yeah. at their own factories and then lowball. You know, like have you I've heard, heard crazy stuff. Have you ever heard of uh, Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I you know Kevin. Remember his um his Walmart story? I don't. It was re- so he had um he made most of his money with educational software for yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah. And he was selling it pretty good. It was hooked on phonics, wasn't it? I don't. Or was it something similar? It's, I think it was something similar. Okay. I, the name is escaping me. He got. He actually got that. You know, entrepreneur dreams. They got that meeting with Walmart, largest retailer, debatable, I guess, with Amazon now. But you know, one large at retailer at the Planet. And th- he goes to the meeting, and Walmart execs come out and they go, "Here's a piece of paper. Here's the offer. We see the future of PCs. PCs, because back in the day, PCs used to be prohibitively expensive, and the software is also very expensive. Mm-hmm. So they go, "Hey, next twelve months, this is the price point PCs are going to hit." You want this product to move? This is what the price it needs to be, and it was relative to his normal cost or cost of consumer. Maybe I think it was like half the cost. Mm-hmm. But they said this is the future of technology. It's going to get cheaper for the masses. Take this deal. And it's going to be life changing. But so it was a lower price. But I mean, Walmart's known for the massive volume. So that's how yeah. he that's how he made so much of his money. Is that life changing deal? Uh-huh. So it, I mean, depending on the situation, it can make or break a company. It's all about leverage, right? Like if you, if you have a product that they can just go create and rip off, you yeah. know, or anybody could, then sure. But you have a patent or you have a software that's yep. proprietary that you designed or a system and you have some leverage going into those meetings and oh, yeah. you can come out ahead. Oh, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's one of the hardest things is coming up with those unique ideas and positioning it mm-hmm. to be basically to be an irresistible idea that, you know, they can't, they don't want to say no to because yeah. it, it would draw in customers. It makes, it solves multiple problems for the customers. It's just, it's just such a win-win. It's, it's not going to be turned down. That's the thing. It's a true value proposition. No, exactly. Yeah. And have, out of curiosity, have you guys worked with any retailers for uh, marketing or is that something you, is that segment you see growing these days or no. shrinking usually? I mean, yeah. with Tenfold, we, we kind of had the, some of the big meetings with big retailers and it's just like yeah. all the deals are structured to where, we don't want to. It's too risky for the business. Yeah, like yeah. I've got I've got my own company going on, and and yeah. you know we're not making we're not doing huge huge numbers to where if we're like exposed that yeah. much, like we don't want to be at risk. We want to s- just slow grind, grow this organically, yeah. and not have to sweat. You know, yeah. taking it negative because we made a multi six figure order for our product. You know. Yeah, that's all. I mean, that's that's a big risk, and of course the price is on you. Yep. Like a lot of people realize, like a good example of that kind of the business situation you're talking about is like with Home Depot, a lot of people don't realize, you know, Home Depot does not own that awesome Milwaukee drill on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Milwaukee, um, parent company, TTI, they actually pay almost like to rent shelf space at Home Depot. Yeah. And there's a revenue share built in. It's mm-hmm. it's a very unique experience as opposed to traditional, you know, any company like Walmart goes to Abercrombie, I was going to say, I don't think they sell Abercrombie and Fitch, but a clothing company yeah. say, hey, we're gonna pot. We're gonna buy twenty million dollars of clothing. Ship it to us. We, here's a check. We own it. Yeah. So it's yeah. interesting to see, and that is a lot of risk when you know that can make or break your company. But there's some variables you can't control. Like what if they put it in a place of store that's not attractive for the consumer? Is it's not placed to a supplementary sup? I was gonna say a supplementary supplement or like yeah. they put it at the wrong you know the wrong section. So it, there's so many variables that make you wonder. Like would it just be better to have it at a specialty gyms where 
people going to the gym, that's what they want. That it's exactly. there, they're there to work out. And even then, I'm sure you're working with the gym. It's like, hey, we think put this right next to the sign-in computer or the sign-in sheet, or you know, there's always the science of where yeah, do you place the product. It. Yep, and what kind of customers walking through the door. So I've always been, you know, like I mentioned with video, with cameras, with equipment, like. I understand the risk I'm taking yeah. and I understand the downside and I'd always take these risks, but you know, I mentioned maxing out a credit card for the camera. Right. I knew the downside of it and it was just like, okay, I know I could make a few thousand, like the worst, worst case scenario. I make yeah. a few thousand dollars enough to offset the depreciation of the camera over a year and I can sell it. And I will come out almost a zero, yeah. you know? So everything sounds risky, but it's all calculated. It's the same thing with vehicles. Like, oh, yeah. I bought that Evo. I sold it for more than I bought it for after oh, really? it made me all that money. Yep. That's a win-win. That's mm-hmm. incredible. So I bought it well. Most of my cars I, I end up doing well on because mm-hmm. I know the space. You yeah. know, I know vehicles. I know camera gear. I can make calculated decisions on that. Absolutely. But, you know, like reta- supplement retail, the deal better be good. Yeah. And I'm going to lean on other people that know the space and tell me whether or not it's good or not. Absolutely. And then, I was gonna say, it kind of touches on what you already did in terms of your hobbies. Tell me about the experience of having to being able to drive a Bugatti. Oh yeah, because that's I mean that's that's a lot of people. That's the pinnacle of automotive engineering. Yeah, it's it's cool. You know, I drive drive is a loose word. You know, I got to move it around on track when we were shooting them. Yeah. Um, but I've gotten to drive a lot of cool cars like that from from other people's collections that were shooting to um, getting to borrow friends' cars. You know, Lambos for a week. GTRs for a week, um, uh, and you know I got to drift my buddy's M4 at a track like nice. um, drive and then drive them hard. I guess I'll, I'll say are two different things, but Very it's true. cool like being in an automotive space, doing what I've done, getting to shoot the cool content. You get to get put in situations where you know you get to either just move these cars around or drive them normally, which is great. And then yeah. I've been on shoots where you know we're shooting a. Daytona kit car and they're like hey uh, does anybody know how to drift and I'm like I do and they put me in the driver's seat and tell me to let her rip oh, incredible <laughs> so it's it's definitely an upside of the job and that you know I love what I do but at the end of the day my passion is be- being behind the wheel so I get to work as closely as I can to that or yeah. like parallel to that and then it affords me time you know in my drift car going to a track and doing HPDE race days too. That's awesome. And it, I know it's hard to say, but what was your favorite car you've gotten to driven? Uh, oof. Favorite car I've gotten to drive. Um, probably, probably an Aventador SVJ I got to take out. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that we were shooting for a dealer that would, they would kind of just throw us the keys. Um, that car was cool. That was on the street, though. I did get to drive my buddy Matt's uh, GT3 RS at the track. Oh, really? And that was probably that's probably the coolest driving experience I've had. You know, I love the SVJ because it's a V12 oh, and yeah. it just screams. But you know, I didn't get to beat the crap out of it. It was a car that we were shooting. Oh, it yeah. was for sale, yeah. so I had to be responsible with of it. Of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the GT3 RS, Matt threw me the keys. He was like, "Track, let Are her rip." Serious? And that was that changed my life and made me realize.
that. So my savings account is never probably going to be what it could have been because <laughs> as soon as I can afford one of those cars, I'm buying it. I mean, that's the pinnacle of journey engineering. The Porsche GT3 yeah. RS is incredible. That car makes you think that you're the best driver in the world. Yeah. So you take it over the line. You realize you're way in over your head driving one if you haven't before. God, I, I, I got to love Porsche, too. They're one of the few companies that listen to the consumers in terms of you ever hear like the stick shift story? I think it's the 80s or 90s. Mm-hmm. Like Porsche was one of the first companies to advertise that they engineered an automatic that was faster than a stick shift. <laughs> and they figured, hey, our customers want to go the fastest, so we're not going to make sticks anymore. So they had a press release, say, press release saying, hey, yeah, we're not going to make sti- sticks anymore. This is faster. We're giving you the fastest experience. The customers were so pissed. They did <laughs> phone calls, emails. They, they did everything they could to let Porsche know. And the CEO said, hey, we listen to the customers. We will always make a stick for our enthusiasts. And, I mean, in terms of supercars, I mean, they're the only one left. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been 20 plus years for Ferrari, Lamborghini, Maserati. Mm-hmm. Maserati. I mean, they might have a one off. I think they have a 20, you know, some anniversary edition for Lamborghini where it's a stick, but. Yeah, no, Porsche's. They're really a true purist brand for sure. Oh. Um, and keeping, you know, the GT3s, the GT4s in manual. I yeah. mean, some of them, like the GT4, you couldn't get in an auto yeah, until 2020. Yeah. And then you're paying more for the PDK oh, yeah. version because it's faster and whatnot. But oh yeah, um, yeah, they're it's Porsche's a, a big, big favorite of mine for sure. I, I've been really getting into the 911. It's not Top Gear. It's like Top, not Top Gun. There's a company where they actually make a 911 fully in carbon fiber. So every body panel mm-hmm. is replaced with carbon fiber. It's crazy. And it's clear coated. So I know like they have a green edition. Yeah, it's one of my laptop wallpapers. It just looks. Amazing, half million bucks. Oh no, for it, it's yeah. like I, I think list price like there's one on eBay. It's like nine fifty. Yeah, it's like, like those Singer but Porsches. But they're all exactly. worth millions. Yeah, I mean those are. I love the mechanics of those Porsches. They're, it's just a work of art. Yeah, and mechanical engineering all come together to have the the purest driving experience. Yeah, a timeless design that doesn't change that much either. Right? There's I a mean, lot to be said about that. Absolutely. That I mean that's one of the brilliances of the Porsche 911. I mean I can well. I, I mean, I would compare it to almost like the Rolex Submarine, Submariner, or yeah, Submariner, Submariner, yeah, yeah. It, like, timeless. Yeah, it's the same watch design for over fifty plus years. It just mm-hmm. looks like a classic and nice, clean. They got the design right, and they just tweak it just a little bit. Yep. Which I mean, just helps keep the brand. Talk about brand loyalty going over time. It's just going to be that much stronger because it's not changing so much. Just yeah. just enough to keep it fresh and kind of keep it aggressive looking. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite commercials I saw. A couple weeks ago, it's old. I think it was maybe 10, 20 years ago. But this kid, you know, he's in class. And what was it? He's, you know, daydreaming about, you know, cars and stuff. So the kid goes to the Porsche dealership. He sits in the 911, and he sees the vision of him driving it when he gets older. And then the nice sales rep comes out, and he gives the kid the car, his business card. <laughs> and the kid goes, thanks. I'll be back in 20 years. And he leaves the shop. That's I awesome. I don't know how much money it would take or where the, if the actors are even alive. But Porsche needs to remake that commercial. I like know. twenty years later, like that kid as an adult buying his yeah, Porsche, yeah, and the sales rep selling it. That it's, would be incredible. Yeah, it's definitely. There's always there's a lot of car commercial that's like the kid watching the yeah. dad getting his Porsche or getting in his old yeah. um, hot rod, you know, and then it shows the kid with his own hot rod or yeah. the newest Porsche. So it's a uh, it works. It's a story yeah. that works. And a story that's true too. Absolutely, I and. I, They've become such a stratospherical, expensive car, but I would love to someday just drive a Carrera GT. I mean, oh yeah, good old uh, rear engine V10 Porsche. I mean, 
I had oh a buddy, buddy of mine. I haven't seen him in a while, but my buddy Billy, he owns a dealership called Texas Hot Rides. And for a while, I would, I'd, I'd always browse their website because they always had the coolest cars. And they would, they were just buying up Carrera GTs yeah. left and right. They'd have like three of them for sale. Three? Yeah. And I'd always go see it. I'd be like, okay, pick up another one. They'd yeah. buy one, they'd sell it. They'd buy one, they'd sell it. It was cool. I mean, that's, that's, one, that's the biggest, that's the, one of the peaks of automotive engineering before they became more, much more computerized. Yeah, yeah. The 918 yeah. Spider was like crazy. Oh, yeah. You know, hybrid <laughs> computer to where that career GT was just straight up V10. Naturally aspirated V10. Stick shift, shift. stick shift only. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a beautiful piece of it. And of course, now I think the lowest you can find them for is like 1.2 million. Yeah, I they're. Mean, I remember seeing them. I think he was selling them at the time around like, I think some of them were in the 900s. Oh, but. Yeah. Yeah, they've all rocket shipped up. All right, like a McLaren F1, you you will not find one under, like what, fifteen million? Like, it, I it, actually it, saw I saw a meme yesterday. It was uh, it was Mr. Bean. He apparently had an F1. What? He put fifty thousand miles on it. He wrecked it twice, yeah. and he still made twelve million dollars when he sold it. Jeez. And it's all these like photos of Mr. Bean like next to the car when it's wrecked and stuff. <laughs> I was like, that's crazy. He's probably person that put that many miles on that car right that, well that's a great talking about branding customer service i mean you could wreck that car nearly infinitely but because of the way it's engineered they can repair it yeah pretty much forever yeah i mean that's good brand loyalty for mclaren and I, and of course it's well for people don't know the v12 is bmw so it's actually serviced you know with from yeah. the bmw group in south carolina i believe at that plant yeah, I'm not sure where they service that. I know that, like, just maintenance on it, especially if it's parked, is, like, insanely ins- expensive. Well, it's, it is like a race car. I mean, yeah. everything is – there's a good YouTube uh, video with Finwiki where they talk about the ownership video. Yeah, I've seen that one. It's like the co- – everything is not engineered to wear out. Like, traditionally, if you have a street car, you can replace the brake pads mm-hmm. when the brake pads are done. Mm-hmm. Everything on the McLaren F1 is engineered to time out. Yeah, So yep. you, if you park it or if you use it every day, no matter what – you have to replace it's gotta like go to the, service. Yeah, like the fuel cells every I think they're 150 grand every three years. Like yeah. it's astronomical hum. And of course, just replace it. I think he was talking about just replacing the tire. Of course you can't just go to a discount tire, which is yeah. a great company, but not only you're not it just takes replacing special stuff. Oh yeah, well it's it's so fascinating because you're not just replacing the tire. They're rebalancing the entire car and they actually do it on mm. a racetrack. So I mean to change That's the tires crazy. is like fifty grand yeah. because you're paying for the, you know the ambulance, the race car driver. So they put the new tire on, and they're tuning everything into the vehicle to to, to have it just be the pinnacle of engineering that it is. Yeah, I, mean, I think the Sharons are like that too. Like oh yeah. If you if you get the the tire that you know the factory puts on it for the top speed runs, it's yeah. like twenty grand to get a set of tires or something ridiculous. I believe I remember, I remember they did decrease the price because remember the Veyron was twenty five per, mm-hmm. like twenty five k per tire. Yeah. Which is a great story of Michelin, but yeah, oh yeah, they made a custom compound for it. Yeah, that was incredible engineering. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah those those hypercar companies, the the structure around it and what they do, and I got to work with uh, Pagani, where I got I got flown out with my my camera rig to basically run camera car for a rally there, and met, oh, really met Horacio, met the family. Yeah, Gosh. I led, I drove the camera car because the the guys had brought me out as the the filmers, and they had me run the camera car. Um, I was the one with race car experience, so I drove up Tail of the Dragon in Cayenne with my crane strapped to it with 20 Paganis behind me. It was, like, the most white-knuckle driving I've ever done just because, like, these guys ship their cars from all over the world to come out here. Like, I don't want to hold them up, and Tail of the Dragon's so, like, tight and compact that I was like, all right, let's get footage for 
a mile, two miles max. Uh, and I ended up not being able to turn around anywhere for like oh. half the run. So oh, I really? was flying, trying not to piss all these owners off because yeah. they came up here to drive it. And they ended up driving it a couple of times, but oh, yeah. we're four wheel sliding in this Cayenne that we were driving and, and, Horacio, I, I got a thumbs up and, and good driving because he doesn't speak English. Yeah. Uh, I got good driving from him because he was uh, he was in the front of the pack uh, following Gosh. us. So that was a uh, white knuckled. But uh, the hypercar space, like they're they're making these like art pieces, you know. Yeah. So like their marketing is around cars and beauty. mechanics and yeah. beauty, and then sh- the Bugatti, like they're just breaking speed records and building yeah. the gnarliest engines that they can. I mean, I love that. It's just, and that's what I always like to tell people, the importance of a brand having a halo car. Mm-hmm. You need to get people excited about the brand, get them in the showroom, and then, you know, they'll buy the base model that they can afford. But it's just, it shows what the company can do. And just yeah. like with F1 technology, it all trickles down to the consumer level yep. eventually. I mean, ABS brakes, I mean, heads-up display, all those technologies trickle down. Yep. And it just became more and more affordable with economies of, sa- of scale. And yeah, that's why racing is important. Absolutely. That's why people, maybe people that aren't into it don't realize it. Yeah. They don't make the connection. But, like, all that tech. Yeah. You know, NASA takes tech from racing. Like yeah. When you, when you let all the rich people go play race car, yeah. you know, all the, I say rich people, but, like, teams. And that's what racing was bred out of. It was, oh yeah. it was people with money creating competition. You create that competition, it creates oh yeah. demand. So that's that's the beauty of racing in the world and the good that it does is it brings all this new crazy tech like you're saying absolutely well i cannot thank you enough for coming on the show i had a great yeah, time man, it was fun thank we'll you have so to much. do it again Appreciate it. absolutely we'll have to do it again max thank you so much thank you ever for listening don't forget topping talks is also on youtube spotify google podcast apple podcast and stitcher don't forget to subscribe like comment tell your family tell your friends tell your coworkers. heck tell your enemies heck tell anyone just stay safe y'all have a great day Topping Talks!